But you know, there's another story of the Afghan war, which actually brings in these rational strategic reasons we fight, which is just basic uncertainty. It requires knowing a little game theory, but it's game theory that I think everybody knows. I mean, anyone who's played poker gets it. You don't know your opponent's hand. Could be weak, could be strong. And you know that they have an incentive to bluff some of the time. So if they're betting aggressively, they're refusing to give in, they won't fold. Maybe they've got a strong hand, maybe they're bluffing. And you're playing more and more rounds with them, right? But not only that, but there's a bunch of other people around the table who are watching you both. Your optimal strategy is not just to fold all the time. And your optimal strategy isn't to like bid it up and then call every time. There's no misperceptions. There's no personal glory. You're not an unchecked leader. We don't need any of the three things. There's just a fundamental place of uncertainty, which is going to lead to this escalation of bluffing and calling, which is kind of the analogy to war. This is the Way Podcast. The militias needed to have a heads up that I was coming. I personally think they didn't, you know, like in chess. So that's how deep the addiction goes. I've been incarcerated most of my life. Having a conversation with them. They've been given no option, either join or die. Snipers, and it was a military. J. Cole came and hung out most of the choir session. I'm standing at the studio blast looking out into the studio. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. This is Bill from The Way Podcast on FM 91.7, WHS stores at the top of the hour. Also on FM 90.3, WRIU, South Kingston, at the top of the hour. Today, I'll be speaking with Chris Blattman. He is an economist and political scientist, and today we're going to talk about his book, Why We Fight, an explanation to the psychological and strategic forces that propel nations to opt for, well, war. Don't forget to give a five-star rating, like, share, review the show. Every little bit helps. You can go to podcasttheway.com. Again, that's podcasttheway.com. What made you want to write this book in the first place, Why We Fight? So I, you know, I I actually kept waiting for somebody else to write the book. (laughs) About like how to solve war or like why we (laughs) have war. You know, because it's a book, it's a little bit about my own ideas and research, but it's actually me trying to bring together a whole field. So, you know, if it's it's kind of everything you ever possibly could read in, you know, if you took an undergraduate or graduate degree in the subject, I think it was just my way to boil it down. And it was kind of amazing to me how there were these amazing, like huge ideas that are at the center of the book that have been around for 30 or 40 years that shape how... I think people who know a lot about conflict think about it. Um, and and yet, the average, not only did the average person not have that, but actually I think even like the average world leader, who, <laughs> yeah. or even some, some of these people, you know, the average military general, whatever, they, I think they'd never heard it before. And that just seemed like kind of an amazing problem. I remember I talked with, he was an advisor for uh, prime ministers. He talked with Putin before. He talked with yeah. presidents all over the world. And his whole idea was the good country index uh, goodcountryindex.org basically dives okay. into how much good a country does yeah and it actually was a strong indicator of just how much good a country does for the world is how well that country will do economically because people will feel better about themselves they they have a more passion for the country right and 
one of the things that seems weird is if that's the idea, it's like, why are these countries fighting? Or why are they doing these negative sides to society? If not, ah, no brainer, but you, you get what I'm saying. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, in my case, I just, it just seemed like, yeah, I don't know. It, it's a, it's a book for anybody who just wants like an introduction to basically everything we know boiled down into a few hundred pages. Yeah, and in the book you have to talk about uh, sociology, or you have to talk about psychology, or mm-hmm. like how many different topics do you kind of blend into covering war? Yeah, so I I did my PhD in economics, but then I taught in political science departments, and so those were the two things that I draw on the most heavily. But I'm married to a psychologist, and I we do a lot of our work together, and a lot of my work on violence reduction is with psychologists, so that's pulled in. But then I, I think I just had to read and learn a lot of history and sociology too. So the, I, I think, you know, everybody gets a, it, you know, it all speaks to one another. Uh, and, 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 but you know, we often dwell in our own little silos. So again, it's a way to bring it all together. Yeah. History seems like a whole nother topic and psychology seems like the basis. So what are some of the psychological reasons? Like why would a, uh, somebody want to start a war, I guess. Right. Well, you know, the, the whole, the basic way to, the starting point for answering why we fight is, is actually just to remember that war is just ruinously costly. So, so, you know, you look at what's happening right now in Ukraine. So as we're recording this, we're, I think, entering the fourth month of this conflict. And the, there's the immense loss of life, right? Like Russia has lost more soldiers in these four months than it lost in its entire long war in Afghanistan, for example. Right? So that's, wow. I didn't that's astonishing. That. Um, there's the, the cities that look like rubble, right? We see, and all the civilian deaths. So that's kind of the clearest costs. But then the, just the treasuries that are being drained on both sides. Um, for, you know, the, the everybody made a big deal about the $40 billion that the United States committed to to Ukraine yeah. recently, that will take Ukraine to about September. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, this is, this is an immensely, you know, that's, and that's, that means like you, Ukraine is spending about, take all the money that was earned, it's total national income every month before the war. And it needs about half of that every month right now to fight the war. I thought war was kind of good for the economy. Isn't that like World War II, how Germany got their economy back was through war? So, um, I mean, it's a big, it's a, it's a common, it, you're right. A lot of people think that, especially in America, because, <laughs> because that we feel like this is how the United States got, got, it, got out of the Great Depression. Um, I guess if other people are at war and you're just selling them weapons, that's good for your economy. So it's good for um, us, but not Ukraine themselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 actually it's just to completely disastrous. This is going to yeah. set Ukraine back decades. Um, that's true for most places. It, war, the idea that war is good for the economy, it might be true. It might be true that competition without violence, like sort of like ratcheting up competition with your adversary, sort of forces you to modernize, forces you to have a better and more efficient state and tax system and develop new technologies. But the actual fighting is yeah. totally destructive. And, and so both sides are just being totally drained by this. And so anyway, so, so wars ruinous. Um, and so every reason why we fight is a reason that we are, are 
leaders were either ignored those costs or or were willing to pay them. And so, where the psychology comes in is, and, and in the book, I sort of say there's basically five ways that happens. Okay. And the 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 and two of them are dwell on psychology, I would say. And and one is one answer is well we we overlook the costs when we basically there's certain systematic mistakes like if basically we underestimate the costs or we vastly overestimate the benefits yeah. as a what I call misperceptions. Um, so we 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 rue that after the fact, but there there are certain systematic ways that that even though these are incredibly high stakes decisions that smart people are deliberating over, they're spending months and months and then they start fighting and then they keep fighting. So they're obviously thinking about it every waking moment of every day yeah. and they somehow get the costs wrong. So that's like one set of explanations. And then there's another set of explanations that I, I, I guess you could call psychological that say, well, we're aware of the costs, but we're willing to pay them because there's some other reward that we get. That's usually ethereal or psychological. So it could be glory. Uh, it could be um, it could be the some sort of satisfaction from seeing the 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 that ethnicity or that religion, the heretical thinker, you know, eradicated. Or it could be fighting for something like liberty. So there's some intangible ideal yeah. that and and you know the, we've just those two people have been very quick to blame the current war that's going on in Ukraine on these psychological factors. So we've just covered two of them. We've just said, well, some people say Putin's isolated, insulated, uh, overconfident. Wait, that's a story yeah. of misperceptions. He's underestimating the, co the costs are there. He's underestimated them and he's overestimated his own chances at victory. That's story number one that you hear from people. And story number two is this story of intangibles. And on Putin's side, it's when you hear people say, oh, he's either seeking personal glory or a place in history, and or he has this vision of a greater Russia and and sort of an imperial greatness. That's he. So he's he's, he's he. There's a cost of war, and but he's willing to pay it for these ethereal objectives that he has. Do you believe that's right? Do you think that's actually the reason he's doing this? So I mean, nobody knows what's going on in his head. So. Yeah. We should, no, and people are very confident about those two, so I don't share people's confidence. They seem very plausible. I think they're probably. I think they're true in part. Um, I think that we forget the other. You know, the other three I would say are more strategic, which means they sort of consider what are the actual interests, the things that would actually cause a cold that are not psychological. That what are the reasons that a cold, calculating you know, computer that doesn't make mistakes might choose to go to war, right? Yeah. And and those, the other three reasons in the book fit under that. And I think those play a big role in this, in this war, as they do in most wars, but they often don't come to mind. And so I think we're really quick to be these armchair psychologists, jump to one and two, and then we tend to overlook the other three. That's a really interesting way of thinking about it with the um, computer, because... Uh, yeah, I think the same way, like psychological, like Putin, maybe he just wants to flex his muscles or yeah. back in the olden days, you'd force your uh, daughter to marry somebody or somebody doesn't want to get married and they start a war, like something like yeah. that. But there could be a reason that you have to go to war. You just, the way things line up, there's no emotional side. It's like, I really don't want to, but I'm put in a situation. I have to go to war. 
Yeah, I mean, so there's there's sort of three scenarios where that can happen, even if even though you don't want to. So, or sorry, even though the the group doesn't want to. So, um, so one is the fact I call it unchecked interests. The fact is, is that Putin, in this case, Putin's a personalized dictator, right? He's yeah. he's not accountable for most of those costs. So, so he can actually take his nation to war and as ruinous as it might be, he only bears a fraction of those costs. Um, and then if he, and then going back and that can interact with the two things we've just talked about. If you have a personalized dictator, well, now we're vulnerable to their intangible incentives. So the, it, it might be that even let's say the average Russian doesn't care enough about the glory of the nation or Putin's personal glory to pay these costs. But Putin only bears a fraction of the costs, and he cares a lot more about that personal glory and maybe the nation. So these things interact, and so now we're pulled to war by the by the vanity or the or these grandiose dreams of our leaders. So that's that that's a toxic combination. Yeah. Um. And and that kind of over centralized power is like a really common theme of war. Uh, it's democracies tend to go to war sometimes, but they they go to war much less frequently than autocracies, and I think that's partly because this power is checked. So that's, that's one thing which, and that think that, that sort of resonates, I think with a lot of people, probably if, 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 if Russia had been run by a business oligarchy, you know, it was like a plutocracy of crony capitalists, yeah. uh, with a Politburo instead of being a personalized dictatorship, maybe we wouldn't have seen this war, right? It doesn't even have to be a democracy. Maybe that just had to be a little less personalized. Yeah, because in America, we have these checks and balances. I remember there's a big fear with like Donald Trump and, oh, he'll just start a war. But we have actual causes that could prevent that from easily happening. That's exactly right. I mean, we, America's the nation that's taken this the furthest in some ways. It's almost, maybe, it's one of the few places that might, might be too checked and balanced in some <laughs> ways. Um, <laughs> but but most nations do not have that problem. Like the there's a lot of power invested in a very small elite, uh, sometimes just a single person. And that's that's a big problem. And that's what I hear. The um, I'm not saying I'm pro-China with what they're doing, but that's mm -hmm. what I hear like their good reason is they don't have to worry about what they want done, they get done. Yeah. I mean, China is a good example of like a, an, it's an authoritarian state, um, but it's not a, is personalized, you know, power isn't invested in a single individual. So Xi Jinping is trying to invest more power in himself and create a cult of personality, but there's still like a really huge bureaucracy and there's a communist party and the military and business elites. So it's actually much harder, I think. So it's a pretty, and then there's lots of regional decentralization. So there's powerful regional governors and powerful locals and, and so you have to bring along a much bigger group. So it's not a democracy, obviously. So it's and it's not nearly as checked and balanced as, as a lot of advanced democracies. But but it's definitely more checked and balanced than Russia. And I think that that accounts for for. And, and again, it comes back to this. Remember, like every reason why we fight is a reason we overlook the costs. And the more checked a leader is, the more costs they have to you know they're forced to they can't ignore. And the mis yeah, bring it back to that the misperception. I remember the Afghan war, a big theme was the people at the bottom didn't want to look as bad to their bosses. So they'd tweak the information. They'd 
edited out, smoothed the curves of the report, saying, oh, it's bad, but it's not this bad. And then that yeah. person would send it to the person above them, saying, it's bad, but it's not this bad. Yeah. And like they'd keep doing it until the guy at the top, the top military general, would read this report saying, oh, we're doing pretty decent in Afghanistan. We're not doing too bad when... That just is a pure recipe for that bad misperception, in this case, continuing a war. Yeah. So, I mean, and there's a, so, so I think there's a good argument for the, these kinds of misperceptions, basically underestimating the cost, overestimating success in Afghanistan, not in a, such a psychological way, but you kind of just described like an institutionalized way, the way in which like intelligence agencies and bureaucracies can also censor or use biased information maybe maybe it's accumulation of lots of psychological errors plus some willingness to only want to hear good news at the top and that's a story there's a famous political scientist who passed away last year bob jervis who wrote a whole book on on these misperceptions but you know there's another story of the afghan war which actually brings in one of the two more of these rational strategic reasons we fight um which is just basic uncertainty so um, you know, which everybody kind of, it, it, it requires a, knowing a little game theory, but it's, it's game theory that I think everybody knows. I mean, anyone who's, who's played poker gets it. Like you don't know your other, you don't know your opponent's hand, Yeah. right? Could be weak, could be strong. <laughs> um, and you know that they have an incentive to bluff some of the time, right? Not all of the time. Nobody has an incentive to bluff all the time. Cause if you're known to bluff all the time, you're not very reliable. You just, some of the time they're going to bluff. Yeah. So if they're betting aggressively, they're refusing to give in, they won't fold. Maybe they've got a strong hand. Maybe they're bluffing. And you're playing more and more rounds with them, right? But not only that, but there's a bunch of other people around the table who are watching you both yeah. and seeing how you play. Um, and so your optimal strategy is just is not just to fold all the time. And your optimal strategy isn't to like bid it up, right, and then call every time yeah. right you actually sort of have to play the game and, and ideally what you'd like to do is because and, and the whole fundamental reason you're doing this is because of uncertainty just basically there's no misperceptions there's no personal glory we don't need you, you're not an unchecked leader we don't need any of the three things there's just a fundamental place of uncertainty which is going to lead to this escalation of bluffing and calling which is kind of the analogy to war except it's much more costly. So it's so costly, you might like to avoid it. But um, so think about America in 2001. It's just been attacked. Yeah. And, uh, and, and the Taliban is refusing to give up Al-Qaeda. And America is kind of perceived as weak. America is perceived as weak in the sense that uh, nobody believed they'd put boots on the ground anywhere in the world. They had pulled out of Somalia after a few deaths. You know, anyone who's seen the film Black Hawk Down, okay. um, they'd refused to send anybody into Rwanda. They'd gone into the Balkans. This is all happening in the 19th. They'd gone into the Balkans um, with great reluctance. And maybe only because the war that was going on was like a couple hundred kilometers from, you know, Vienna, like super close to Western Europe. Yeah. And then they had been bombing Iraq and they'd been sanctioning Iraq, but they'd never done anything. And, and so they were sort of seen as weak. And so, you know, and, and so you could kind of imagine what America did in Afghanistan was it built a reputation. 
it said, we're going to go in and we're going to show you just how high cost we'll pay to punish anyone who does this destruction on our territory. That's not to say it's right. It's just to say, and then even if, and then, and then initially they, they won, you know, they, the Taliban actually sought a political settlement. I think there was a big mistake not to sort of seek a political settlement with the Taliban yeah. those first years. And then the Taliban surprised everybody by actually having a much stronger hand than anybody expected. They, they, no one realized this till 2006, 2007. I'm not even sure the Taliban realized what a strong hand they held. But then once, once the Taliban started winning to some degree, in some sense, if it was, if it was just one round of poker, America just should have folded and gotten out, but everybody else was watching. Yeah. And so the idea is like, well, What's the price? Well, you know, it's about a hundred lives a year of Americans, and and about 05 percent of national income every year. Would we pay that to build a net, like an international reputation to just not mess with us? And so I think that's the choice America made. So I think there's some misperceptions, but I actually think it was a very cold, rational calculus that says we need to construct a reputation to that serves as a warning to every other possible terrorist group or pariah state just how far we will go if if attacked and i think they if everything else was a failure but i think they did that successfully they said we're so stupid and crazy we will we will fight a losing war for 20 years if you if you mess with us well so if it was a one-on-one -on -one closed door we probably would have taken the deal and left but we need to show to the rest of the world hey we're not that easy yeah yeah i think that i i think you know and i think misperceptions are part of it and i think the reason we didn't settle with i think the reason that rumsfeld and and cheney and bush refused to settle with the taliban in 2003 and 2004 was sort of ideological so those intangible incentives i think a lot of these things matter but i think people again we we overemphasize that stuff a bit too much and we don't pay attention to this really basic strategic incentive that comes from uncertainty that ironically i think we all understand yeah, one thing I've learned is when like debating somebody on any topic, I get my news from one source, they get their news from a complete different source. Yeah. So not only do we disagree, we have solid reasons for our disagreements. Yeah. And then looking at this countrywide war, that uncertainty from your book, it talks a bit about how you don't know what that country knows. That country doesn't know what you know. You can have spies mm -hmm. and they'll give you information, but yeah. how reliable, how much information are you getting? Yeah. So that that's just been a big a theme throughout history, like out of fear of what they know or what they don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's like we each end up with different cards and we don't even. Yeah. And there's <laughs> that basic uncertainty that just makes it. How do we we, we, we just we have to sort of agree, we, we don't even know what the cost of war is. Right. That's kind of what the uncertainty is. We, do, we And we don't know how willing you, you are to pay that cost of war, too. So there's just a lot of basic uncertainty. And, and, you know, we also see that underestimation here. And people are very quick to, in Russia and Ukraine, people are very quick to say that Putin miscalculated, which in some sense he did, and that he's isolated and he's insulated. And I think those are probably true. But, but then people forget how four months ago, how uncertain so many things were. So how, you know, how strong was the Russian army going, going to be? Uh, how unified and plucky and brave and effective was the ukrainian uh, army going to be and how unified would the west be on sanctions and and the idea that putin would get a bad draw on all three of those things i don't know that anybody predicted 
I don't least know. of all, yeah, least of all Vladimir Putin, right? So, so he gambled, right? He he didn't know what the strength of his opponent's hand. He couldn't trust any protestations that no were quite resolved uh, because it might be a bluff, and so that uncertainty is now getting resolved. But, but, but I think we 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 sort of so he miscalculated in the sense that he kind of gambled and got it wrong, but. It, and maybe it was partly because he misperceived it; it was overconfident. But I think he, I think, I think most people got those three things wrong. And so, so is that misperceptions or is that uncertainty? Yeah, I remember early on. I think a lot of people would agree. We thought Russia would win, maybe not too quick, but yeah, it looks like the ta- uh, once Ukraine started coming back, it was a. I wouldn't have bet my money on it if I had to put it like that. And- yeah, I think that's true. So I think we just have to. Right. So I think I think that's why we, we just have to pay attention to these, these basic strategic dynamics that uncertainty creates and, and how that might be part of the explanation. So uncertainty, that kind of leads into the commitment problem chapter right. of your book, I want to say. Sure. Yeah. So the idea here, this is this is the fifth and like the, the, the last sort of strategic reason to go to war and in some ways it's one of the most common in history and and that's why it's so tragic that it's not understood. It's a good example of something that I think a lot of sort of scholars have known about for 30 or 40 years and seen as like so important for understanding human history in the world. And then it's just not out there and it sort of is super frustrating. So it's a good example of why I wanted to write the book just to explain ideas like this. Um, There's this old Iraqi saying that says, uh, if your enemy is going to eat you for dinner you eat them for lunch (laughs) Uh, and I think that captures the idea of the commitment problem which is to say that if you think your adversary is going to be so powerful in future that they're going to have all the bargaining power and they're going to be able to force you to do whatever they want but you have the power now well fighting's really costly and we'd love to find a way to avoid it my my adversary would love to promise oh no 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 no. I'm going to be super powerful in future but I promise I won't (laughs) take advantage of you. (laughs) And sometimes they find ways to do that. They make a a commitment, a credible commitment. Um, But when they can't do that, then you have an incentive to go to war uh, and basically lock in your advantage. You say, well, the timing is perfect. Like if I don't do it now, it's now or never. There's this closing window of opportunity. And people use that to understand World War I, Germany facing a rising Russia, needing to nip that in the bud before Russia's too powerful. Um, people use that to explain the U.S. invasion of Iraq, which is we need to eliminate the possibility of uh, Iraq becoming incredibly powerful by obtaining nuclear weapons. And North Korea with that fear of nuclear weapons. Correct. And and that was a missed opportunity. I mean, in some sense, if, if the United States had... had um, had the opportunity and like enough advance notice and felt they could nip it in the bud that might that would have been an incentive right once that power shift has occurred well there's nothing that can be there's nothing that can be done but um so so in the case of like ukraine russia it's probably not as important as these other four factors we've talked about but the sense in which there's a certain element of a commitment problem is the idea that it's not that ukraine's going to become more powerful than russia by any stretch of the imagination, anytime, anywhere, you know, in human, in, in the entire future, it's, it's yeah. like a smaller stagnant economy. But, but I think there is a sense in which at the beginning of this year, Russia was probably at its peak leverage versus Ukraine in Western Europe. And it was just going to be downhill from, 
there. So in the sense that it was, there was this now or never logic. In, in the sense that Ukraine was acquiring greater defensive capacity to just purchase these Turkish drones that we hear so much about. It would have been developing its, its, its own missiles, like these Neptune missiles that have sunk these warships in the Black Sea. Uh, it might be growing closer to Europe and the United States, acquire more long-range missiles. So there was a certain now-or-never logic uh, that I think shaped the timing of this war, even if I think the other things caused Putin and Russia to ignore the costs. Well, outside the uh, growing defenses, Ukraine joining NATO, I thought that was like a main scare for Russia. It's not clear if that was such a major... I mean, it's it obviously was something Russia was unsatisfied with. I mean, you can imagine that if 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 all of Latin America, if all of South America looked like Venezuela and Cuba, right? These socialist authoritarian republics, and every year for the past thirty years, one more nation fell, one more nation fell, and now the last remaining quasi-capitalist, quasi-democratic place was Mexico. And it too was about to like go the way of this advancing, you know, Soviet-like bloc. Uh, Americans would be pretty freaked out, right? Yeah. That would be because it would sort of be like shrinking power, and it would be right on our doorstep. So that would be a concern, um, but there'd be a strong incentive to negotiate with Mexico or negotiate with this advancing bloc to at least avoid, try to avoid this fight, which would be super devastating to both sides. Maybe even uh, you could avoid, you know, maybe that, maybe that block would say, okay, well, in principle, Mexico can join, but we're not going to, it won't join for decades. Yeah. Right. Uh, which, which was kind of the stats the state of affairs. Um, it's not clear that it would make sense to invade Mexico you know, to avoid the mere chance in 30 years that they might join this block yeah. because it would be so costly. So I think you need something more. Like, so it definitely was, you know, because well, there's always something our adversary is doing that we don't like. But that doesn't mean we, we, we turn to violence. We seek some other solution because the fighting's so costly. Yeah, is there typically a reason to go over that hump? Because I'm sure we have lots of rivals throughout history, but what yeah. pushes it from a scrimmage to that actual full-on war well i mean i think in that scenario the more if if we didn't have if we had a if america was run by an autocratic elite that was personally threatened by russia like mexico going over to this block that would raise the cost of war right? their unchecked interests if there was like systematic misperception and because our elite was like isolated and getting bad intelligence right mm -hmm. if it was fundamentally uncertain how strong mexico was um, if there was a sense that Mexico was moving towards not just that block, but actually going to get harder and harder to invade over time. And we had to like lock in our advantage now. So all of these five reasons that I've just talked about, that's the time, right? So even when our enemies on our doorstep, we often don't have an incentive to fight. We just sort of accept it because that's the state of the world. And, 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 and we're not going to get, getting, get, we're not going to improve matters by invading because, because we can get, we can actually just use the threat of war to probably get at least as much, if not a better deal. Um, that's the basic idea. And then it's when these five factors that we just talked about intervene, that that's when, when that would happen. It's a long time ago, but I remember like the Romans, when they conquered the rest of Europe, 
that's a form yeah. of war and their economy boomed because they're just so dominant and powerful mm-hmm. can war get you that better de- you said uh the deal would get you the best case scenario most likely can a war actually make your country be so much better off if you win it right well there's another argument and i don't know my roman history as well but what most empires do is they they have to fight a handful of wars um but they you know they act what they actually do is they arm they build these massive armies and then they show up on your doorstep with the ships and the armies and they're like would you like to fight or would you like to pay tribute and 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 people say we would like to pay tribute most of the time not all the time sometimes you have to fight often those battles are often quite short yeah. so you could argue that a lot of the roman success and wealth came not from war making but from arming and threatening right so i so i'm trying to say it's the actual fighting that's a bad idea you know building up a, a, a humongous army and then cowing everyone into submission could be very good for your home economy right potentially uh so in poker when you put all your chips on the line the, and you get them to fold that's the best case scenario yeah like if you show up at the poker table with a million dollars and everybody else at the table comes in or, or a stack it's not even a million dollars you you show up at the poker table with like an ability to count cards or aces up your sleeves or you know you get to play with your own deck or something right like you bring like then 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 you're going to clean up yeah. uh and and when and when and people probably aren't going to call your bluffs very often because they're not they're they're there's a low probability of bluffing you probably do have a strong hand because you have all these inherent advantages so if you come with like a stacked deck right that's kind of what that's kind of what it is to to be like the roman empire or or the russian empire or the mongolian empire or the british empire like a lot of that conquering isn't actually violent that also makes me think of the laws of war like you can't use mustard gas and there's other laws that the whole world sort of unites behind mm-hmm yeah. So why do we have those? I because they're so immoral, and it's interesting that we can all unite against it. Yeah. But it's war- weird because World War One or World War Two, some people can take on the rest of the world. Even. Yeah, I mean, so one well, there's a couple ways to look at this. Like one is to say, look, it would be nice if if. You know, you and I are enemies, like America and then Russia, for example. It would be actually nice if we, and we can both get more power in this world and against one another by arming, right? And whoever wins the arms race will just have more bargaining power and more strength in the world, right? And not just the arms race, but the to invent new things and to build allies, to wield like all this soft cultural power and so on and so on, right? So we're arming, 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 and we never fight. That's like the normal state of affairs. It would be great if we could say, you know what, why don't we just agree that we're not going to arm? You're not going to arm, I'm not going to arm. And the the whatever percent of national income we spend every year, we'll, we'll spend less on guns and then we'll divert it into other better stuff, right? We're not going to spend like one in every $3 that are, are taxes on national defense. Um, great. We'd love to do that. Uh, why don't we do that? Well, we can't trust the other side to follow through, right? So there's a commitment problem. So there's actually a commitment problem in arming. Now, right, we, we managed to not fight. 
which would be the super inefficient thing. But then we do the thing, other thing that's still kind of inefficient, which, which is which we arm. And we just divert all these resources. Uh, so certain conventions like chemical weapons conventions and biological weapons were like, we know those are okay. Then we know all these other weapons are super bad, but these are really bad. And so let's make a credible agreement that we both won't use them. And we're going to enforce that agreement. We're going to get around the commitment problem by just everyone agrees that this, how horrible these things are. So we're going to, any leader who used them would probably face an uprising of their own people, if not an objection of their own elites. But also every other country has kind of agreed that if anybody breaks that rule, we're all going to gang up on that person. We might not gang up on them for anything else, but we'll gang up on them for that. So we managed to solve the commitment problem for some kinds of weapons, but not for all. Yeah, that that also makes me think back to checks and balances, where yeah. instead of the country itself, it's the world being its own check and balance. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and that would solve the commitment problem, right? If we had a world government, right, that was powerful enough, they could solve the commitment problem. And we do have that to some degree. So think of the Western Hemisphere. We don't arm against, like, the United States doesn't arm against Canada, and Canada doesn't arm against the United States, and, and Mexico and, and the U.S. don't arm against one another. There's a commitment. They've solved, like, basically... The, the Americas have mostly solved this problem. Within this hemisphere, we're all at peace with one another. Uh, and we have, like, partly it's because there's a single, you know, gorilla in the room, which is the United States, right, that is enforcing this, right, that's kind of the government of the Americas. But we also have the Organization of American States. We have a bunch of institutions. And then we've got a whole bunch of informal institutions, like cultural affiliations, shared political systems. So we don't arm against one another. So we've actually fixed that problem. And so has Europe. The European Union has done that. Um, and so, so, so we have been good at constructing these, solving those commitment problems in like a, in big hemispheres, which is, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. That's a good thing. And, and so now the next step is just to try to take it to a higher level. Your book actually dives into interdependence and mm -hmm. sort of intertwining cultures and economy. And if everyone's intertwined with one another, is that sort of that solution, like kind of what the EU did? Yeah. So it goes back to this idea that we don't fight because it's too costly, but it's just costly to us. I don't have to care about the costs to you in order for me to like find it better to, to try to threaten and bargain rather than actually do this terrible thing, which is fighting. Um, but then any interdependence, like if my economy is entwined with yours, cause we trade with one another, like I rely on you for like essential components, yeah. uh, or, or, you know, I need you, I, you know, you sell me wheat and I sell you back bread or something like that. Yeah. Um, then if we go, if we go to war, I actually care about your well being, not cause I like care about you as a person, right. Yeah. But actually cause our, my economy is going to suffer. Uh, and then if I also, but probably the more I'm economically interacting with you or the more that we share immigration, the more that I visit your country, I also care a little bit about you. So even if I only care about a little bit of your costs, I feel bad. That's making war even more costly. And so all of these kinds of social, economic, you know, ideological interdependencies are going to be pacifying mostly because they make war and fighting actually more costlier than they even felt before. The social side makes me think of that good country index that I brought up mm -hmm. earlier where, mm -hmm. oh, if the country's good and helps one another, we don't want to fight them. Like kind of like Switzerland where they sit out on the side or 
Vinlander. Yeah, I mean, it might be. My, my worry with something like the Good Country Index is it's sort of it's explaining things by being the thing we want to explain. Like it's sort of like countries are good. Like if I'm if countries are perceived as good, well, maybe it's because they've managed to be wealthy and they've managed to avoid fighting. And so it's sort of like saying we explain wealth and peace by creating an index of things that are wealth and peace. It's sort of, it's almost like tautological. So I, I worry a little bit about uh, what w explaining something with an index that is the thing we're trying to explain, but that's maybe I don't under, I haven't heard of it before, so I might be mischaracterizing it. Yeah, that makes sense what you're saying. The um, good is such a vague word. It has yeah. some more lists where it's more like, how much do you donate to other countries or, well, how infrequently do you start a war is one example, but yeah, how well your people's happiness are. It, it has a lot of fake steps to it, which is a fair cr uh, critique of it. I mean, it's, it's useful to like sort of say like, listen, we're always ranking countries and we're comparing, oh, we, we, we have these common metrics of success, like income that like how much, how much stuff does your nation produce? Uh, and, and, and so it's totally reasonable for someone to say, hey, wouldn't it be not? And then, you know, the, the United States in terms of a per capita, like there's a handful of nations that are always going to be on top. And so it's perfectly reasonable to say, actually, we care about more things than national income. And therefore, let's create a different index that's a, bit, a little bit broader. Likewise, when people look at poor countries and they, they say, well, national income is useful for understanding the, the the countries on the in the lower end but why don't we also but actually some places are poor but they have really high literacy and some places are poor and they have pretty good health and some places are poor and they're happy um and opposite you know there's poor places that are not only are poor but they're incredibly illiterate and unhealthy and unhappy and so why don't we create a more human development index and that's a very common one so they call it the human development index and it looks pretty similar at the top but at the bottom there you know it makes places like cuba for example, look a lot better because people are, and makes people, places like Bhutan look a lot better. And they're saying, well, we might be poor, but we're literate, we're healthy, and we're happy. So give us some credit for that. So it's totally reasonable to have these indexes. Kind of makes me think of Rwanda where they're doing like much better. The economy, they're prospering. But apparently there's uh, this kind of backside where the dictator, uh, Paul Kagame, has yeah. this backstory that isn't really brought into the good country index yeah i mean rwanda i mean i think it's a good example of a pretty personalized autocracy around kagame um he has been very a very very effective you know governor since he took power you know he he, he, he took power after a civil war which is side one um and for that reason he's become a bit of a donor darling for the west uh, the problem with these systems is they usually start to unravel. So a lot of the great growth successes occur under dictators and a lot of the great growth failures occur under dictators and often they're the same dictator. Yeah. And, and so, you know, if he could find a way to peacefully transfer power over to like a more checked and balanced set of institutions, um, and be willing to sort of once he let goes of the reins, like somebody let somebody he hates take like risk that happening. I think he could put Rwanda in a very good place. Uh, that's kind of what Lee Kuan Yew did. I think in Singapore, my prediction is he's going to try to hand over power. 
He's going to try to cling on to it until he dies, as many of these people do. And then he's probably going to either try to hand over power to a close call, like Crony, or many, many rumors say his daughter. Yeah. Uh, and then he's going to take the country down with him. That's kind of the sad, repeated story we've been on again and again. And and and, and he might take his... And, and because he's a personalized dictator, he might start a civil war or an international war in order to cling on to power. Yeah, as they say, history repeats itself. So yeah. it be... Seems like he's set up for that. But that also makes me think of why we fight, why we start wars. Why do we genocide? Why do we have something like that, which is such a one-sided massacre? Yeah. Well, a lot of, and, you know, Rwanda is a good example. Most mass killings, including genocides, um, happen in the context of a civil war. Uh a lot of scholars sort of think of it again. There's this. We went go back to this idea of a commitment problem. In some sense, it's saying, "Listen, like your group is going to be powerful in future. Uh, I could cut a bargain with you, and we could agree to share the country. But I know I'm going to get a dwindling share over time. Yeah. Or I could just maybe not wipe out every single one of you, but I could wipe out enough of you that I'll be able to maintain power forever." And we both like to avoid that because obviously you'd like to avoid it. I'd like to avoid it because that's a pretty messy thing. Can all the condemnation? It's going to be super hard. So what? Maybe you can make a. We can write a constitution that gives me a lot of power without having to wipe you out. And I believe that. And a lot of countries do that, right? That's what constitutions do. Uh, but when that fails, it's sort of like the, the the measure of last resort, and it often happens in a civil war. And so that's that's kind of what happened. Paul Kagame's forces were advancing on the capital. He was winning. He was going to take over. And so as a last grasp onto power, the people, the, the majority Hutus who said, listen, let's try to prevent this. Let's let's use the last weapon we have in our arsenal, which is to try to eliminate all the Tutsis, which will basically eliminate their, basically maybe take them out forever. And and that it happened to fail, but sometimes it succeeds. But it it it's it's this cold, you know. It people sort of frame it in terms of psychological hatreds, and that's partly true, obviously. But people forget the strategic logic as cold and sort of evil as it is. It's back to that we think of the psychological reasons, but a computer might see it as a net positive to do it. Yeah, and I think so. I think a lot of genocides involve both, right? I don't want to make it sound. And then by saying something strategic doesn't mean it's good, right? It, it's it's pure. It's the most evil and self interested thing, you know. I think one group can do to another, but but uh, most genocide scholars sort of recognize that this is this is exactly what's going on. And another question I have is with the viewpoints and. Most of most people in America and the world, I think, are anti-war. We don't want uh -huh. to go to war. It seems like a good reason. But I remember seeing um, an article about how the public's opinion in America, mm -hmm. no matter what it is, whether it's guns, Medicare for all, or prisons, or any topic, the amount of people that support it makes no difference whatsoever on what bill will be passed. Zero mm -hmm. percent people could support something up to i think it's like 90 percent. then you get like a maybe a small difference but it makes no difference on what bills will get passed yeah. another argument that i'm not going to dive into is if you're rich and wealthy well then that support does actually make an impact on what bills can get passed 
Um, yeah, I mean, I think I'm not. I, I guess I would say. I mean, I do think popular support in a democracy like the United States does matter. So I'd say I'd paint a slightly better picture than you do, but I'd I'd agree that we've constructed a system where those with more resources have more say. That's just most systems are like that. So it's probably less true here than it is in a lot of places, but it's, it's still true. Um, you know, again, we, but we've also constructed, you know, a lot of people, depending on whether, which side you're on, like a lot of people are frustrated by America's political system, which essentially gives um, rural areas and, and smaller states in terms of population, uh, like an outsized say in, in the government and, and what happens. Uh, that is, in some sense, you can sort of see that as America having solved its commitment problem 250 years ago. And again, hundred and you know 170 years ago or 160 years ago after the civil war is that you had a set of smaller states that knew that they were going to be uh cut out eventually right they're gonna why would i join this union when you're going to be more populous and have more say and and we're just going to be marginalized and we're better off on our own and so the larger more populous states who expected to grow had to make a promise to the smaller states to say no 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 we are going to make a commitment to you that you will always have a say in excess of your population and your strength. And, and, and we're going to make it so ironclad that it will last decades, if not hundreds of years, even when it's against our interests to continue with that. Um, and in return, we won't conquer you. We won't, we're going to actually have a peaceful union. Um, so that's, that's kind of why we have the system we do today. So a lot of people get frustrated. They're, oh, we're not a direct democracy. All, you know, we're not really representative, da, da 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 And you're like, right, that is the commitment we made as a nation uh, decades and decades and decades ago. And, and the only reason we're like a unified, powerful nation is because we were able to make that commitment. So you kind of have to take the good with the bad. And now people want to renegotiate it. And maybe that's reasonable after a period of time. Um, but the whole reason it's hard is because that's what it means to make credible commitments. Makes sense. I understand that. And yeah, it's good to not go back on your word. When a war comes around, do we have a influence on what happens as in like Vietnam war, you'd saw like peaceful protests. Do we, as the people influence war? Um, I think so. I mean, I think, uh, I think what I mean, democracies are less likely to go to war than other systems of government, especially against other democracies. Uh, I, I have to think that's partly because it's just generally not in the common interest to go to war because all these people who are bearing the cost, so it's not just a moral outrage. It's just the people who have to get sent to the front lines. There's this amazing study that looked at how uh, men and women in Congress voted for conscription and voted for war basically since America's inception. And if a, if a congressperson has a son between the ages of whatever, 17 and 20-something, whatever the draft age is at that particular time, they're much less likely to vote for war than if they have a daughter that age. <laughs> right? And then the minute their son passes the draft age and is like whatever, 28 or whatever the age is at that particular moment in time, 
then they they're they're back to supporting war just as much as the average congressperson. So that's them taking account of their personal interests, right? But it just goes to show to the extent to which politicians, even democratic politicians, are shaped by are are maybe imperfectly taking into account the well-being. And then the more we hold them accountable for that through protests, through phone calls, through donations, the more likely it is that they're, you know, going to vote in a more peaceful direction. Gotcha. So if the more we push, the more impact we actually do have. No, absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons why democracies, while not entirely peaceful, tend to be a lot more peaceful. Gotcha. And side note, that's a cool coffee mug with the why we fight on it. Oh, yeah. My mom (laughs) made this for, uh, my mom put this in my stocking for Christmas. She made a why we fight coffee mug. So it's a one of a kind, one of a kind coffee mug. (laughs) Nice. I like it. I was going to ask if it was on the website, but no, you got it exclusive yeah maybe i should i'm not sure i'm not sure there's a big market for why we fight coffee mugs if there is i'll I'll definitely start the start the trend and when like i like to look at war as like one-on-one fights between people like maybe the same psychology Mm -hmm. and if like i'm wrong there's a group of people i'm man enough to admit when i'm wrong like okay i messed up you guys were right if there's a fair reason you guys are right i'm wrong but when you're a country and you're a big global power or even a small one, if you admit you're wrong, it sort of seems like you're setting yourself up to ruin the country down the road. Can you can you do that? Um, so I guess what I would say is um, I think you're bringing us back to this idea of uncertainty and reputation, which is to say if everybody knew how strong I was or how resolved I was like that's that's my bargaining power in in the world right because I I have a I expect to have all these territorial disputes and trade disputes and all these other disputes with other countries most of which will be peacefully reconciled but the the more resolved and stubborn and strong they think I am the more influence I'll have in all those future disputes so every time they get resolved peacefully they'll get peacefully resolved in more and slightly more in my favor the more tough I am. And so we all have, so the only sense I think in which this sort of saving face or showing resolve matters is, is because there's some uncertainty and it affects all these future bargains. And, and so it is a reason why I think countries are maybe reluctant to give up without giving it their all. And so it, it might be why once fighting, you decide to just keep fighting until it's kind of plain what cards you have because you gave it your all, right? You don't want to, you don't want to send a negative signal at the same time. Like the fact is, is most countries don't fight the wars in the first place. And when they do fight it, a lot of the wars are short because they're so costly. So they do find ways. So the saving face thing, I think gets exaggerated. So it's real, but at the end of the end, at the end of the day, it's a pretty big price to pay for a little bit of reputation that you might not even gain. Right, because because you might because sort of showing everybody that you're weak because you lose, it's not clear that that's better than like stopping before you show them that you lose. Yeah, that makes sense. And a losing war I can think of that might be a little bit different, but I want to say the war on drugs. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an interesting one. Like in theory, like the war on drugs is in many ways a losing. A losing war. Well, there's there's two wars on drugs. There's a war on drug consumption, which makes a lot of sense, right? It makes a lot of sense to actually just try to avoid people getting addicted to these substances, right? Or or to 
because these really serious addictions are a problem. I think everybody agrees on that. But there's a second war on drugs, which is the war against these armed criminal organizations like cartels and drug gangs. That's super costly, right? And so you might say, well, it's kind of the same thing. Like, it's really costly to fight these drug gangs and these cartels. Why don't we just have a peace agreement with them? And, and a lot of countries have done that in history. Like in Mexico for decades, the cartels and the government were basically had a deal. We're not going to fight. And, and we're the government. We're pretty strong. So you guys are going to give us an enormous amount of your profits. <laughs> that lasted up until about the 1970s and 80s. Um, so why don't we do that? Why don't we just say to these guys, look, we will uh, we'll concede. And it's, it's why neither one of us is gaining from fighting. You just keep your... Profits. I think there's a couple reasons for that, but one of them might just go back to this idea of, I talked about these intangible incentives. That was the second psychological reason for war. Like there might be something we get like glory sometimes, but I mean, principle fighting on principle is another example. And I think this is an example where I think most people and politicians, but especially democratic ones, just find the idea of, of, of just letting the drug lords reap these profits and not be fought. Just, they find it repugnant. It's like a comp. It's an it's a sensible compromise that the computers would make, and we refuse to make it because it's repugnant. And so, I that to me is like the core reason for the war on drugs is we just find it absolutely repugnant in democracies, and we demand that our governments fight these armed organizations, and so they do. And that I don't object to that. I think I can I sort of share that repugnance. You object to it, or you no? I don't sure? object to it. I don't object to it. I think okay. there's also strategic incentive. I do think there's a little bit of a also a strategic incentive. I think it's they're so powerful that I think if we left them alone, they'd grow more powerful and corrupt our politics even more than they have. And so, especially in Latin America, so that's maybe a little bit of a commitment problem story as well, which is to say that the drug gangs can't promise not to get stronger over time if we stop fighting them, and to sort of make us more like them. And so, so it's partly repugnance. It's partly this kind of commitment problem, and that's why we fight this sort of forever war, and that nobody will ever win. It's hard for them to have those same checks and balances that you can expect in a government to have. Yeah, and and that's one reason as well, probably why we fight is that they don't, they 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 don't, you know, they they can they don't pay a lot of the costs of that war on ordinary people, right? They don't care. Yeah. Um. I mean, the other thing that keeps us from fighting is we we have sort of made a decision most societies made a decision to outlaw these substances uh partly for good reasons you know this horrible levels of addiction and things but um that we refuse to sort of create legal sale but that creates these armed organizations and a black market uh and so there's sort of this ideological commitment to not selling these substances has created armed organizations that will supply them that we have to fight against. So, you know, I, I guess I, I think legalization is like of even the most serious drugs is like in some ways a terrible idea, but it's less terrible than all the other ideas. Yeah. Fair enough. It's sort of that negotiation at the table. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. And the last question to ask sort of following that theme of a different kind of war, do these same five reasons come into play for something like, Australia's war with the emus or America's war with tumbleweeds, stuff like that. Um, interesting. I, I think, uh, probably that's an instance where we've just sort of taken this 
this this thing that's called I don't know, investing in eradication or investing in something. We're just calling it war because we're just investing in eradicating something. There's no strategic actor. Like the thing is, the thing with the the two armed groups, country A and country B, Russia, Ukraine, America and Russia, uh, the drug gangs, and is there's these two actors that are strategically choosing what to do, and and so a lot of the strategic dynamics. Uh, come from that interplay of thinking, calculating, you know, it's sort of like saying if you were playing poker against, I don't know, tumbleweed, is that still like a poker game? Like, I don't know. It's, it's, it, you might call it like a game, but at the end of the day, like, you know, you're just, you're, there's just some sort of mechanical process that's generating a lot of tumbleweed. And so you're just trying to, so I wouldn't, I would just sort of put it in a different category of, of things that we're trying to work against, but I wouldn't think of it in terms of war. Fair enough. I think I'd say the same thing. <laughs> Well, Chris Blattman, thanks so much for coming on the show. No, thank you for having me. Is there any final message you want to tell the audience? Well, I mean, I, I think it's just to always like zero in on this idea that war is costly, war is costly, war is costly. It just it's like a such a useful starting point for understanding why it's going to happen and and why and and the fact that it sort of means that most of the time we'll avoid war when we do start wars most of the time they're short uh and 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 that hopefully it's not doesn't just make you might be more optimistic about the world which is a nice which is a nice thing but i think it also makes it's going to make you much better at predicting what's actually going to happen and explaining what's going to happen and that was chris blattman to see more information about him, be sure to click the link in the description. If you tune through the radio, I highly recommend you check out the podcast. Don't forget to give a five-star rating, like, share, review the show. Every little bit helps. Again, for information, you go to podcasttheway.com. That's podcasttheway.com. This is FM 91.7, WHS Stores at the top of the hour. And FM 90.3, WRIU, South Kingston at the top of the hour. And as always, deuces. This has been The Way Podcast. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com.